On this episode of St. Louis in Tune, we'll return to civility, talk to Nina Ferrigno about the Missouri Chamber Music Festival coming up here in June, and we will talk about debates. Greetings, listeners in Listerland. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, government, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. We originate from and connect the Gateway City to what is happening regionally, nationally, and internationally. Mark Langston is on assignment today, so he will not be with us, but we will return to civility as we always do at this time of the show. And this is a great one, especially for our guest. If your neighbors are hosting an event or they're going to have their house for sale, go the extra mile to make your own home look nice. It's a quick and easy way of saying I'm glad we're neighbors, and they'll likely do the same for you one day. That's really important, especially holiday times. We just have had the Memorial Day holiday, and there's always a lot of activities going on, and families are gathering together. The July 4th will be coming up. Sometimes there's graduation parties or birthday parties, and you don't want to be that neighbor that doesn't mow the lawn or tries to mow the lawn and clean up while the party's going on. Not a very good thing to do. Be a good neighbor. If your neighbor's going to have their house go for sale, clean up your act a little bit. Help them get a little more money out of the deal. It's very important. And our guest is the executive director of the Missouri Chamber Music Festival, Nina Ferrigno. She is also a pianist. And I want to read her a little of her bio because You musicians out there, like myself, it's always important to have some great credentials. Although, you could be successful without the credentials, but she's a graduate of the New England Conservatory of Music. She's appeared as a soloist with the St. Louis Symphony, Boston Modern Orchestra Project, the Boston Pops, and Tanglewood Music Center Orchestra. She's collaborated and been principal keyboardist with the St. Louis Symphony, Boston Symphony, Boston Pops, Chicago Symphony, and the Boston Modern Orchestra Project. She's on the teaching faculty of Washington University and Webster University. Nina, I should say welcome back, but we had a telephone interview. This is first time in studio, so welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. It's great to have you here, and you're here to talk about Season 13 of the festival, which is going to take place here shortly. Yes. June 12th through the 17th is the is our Missouri Chamber Music Festival 13th season. Hard to believe. <laughs> And when you first thought about the whole season and formed that as a co-founder, has it gone like you had planned? In other words, are you at the point where, you know, you're getting new works in, you're getting international artists coming in? Do you ever Did you ever dream about that when you initially put this project together? Yes. In some ways, when we started the festival in 2010, we had thought, oh, we just want to be a neighborhood festival. We thought, we'll just rehearse with doors and windows open and people can just walk in off the streets in Webster and hear this great music. And it's definitely grown beyond that, Mm -hmm. where we do have just, I think it's become more focused and programmatic in in the programming, thematic in the programming. And 
it's, yeah, it's felt very important to me. And when you're talking about the programmatic aspect of Mm -hmm. that, especially with this season, Mm -hmm. there's four words that you're using to describe this season, Mm -hmm. and they are? Love. And? Death. And? Intrigue. And finally? Diversion. Okay, now (laughs) how do those all fit together? Well, that's a good question. I think that I was really drawn to these pieces that were expressing an intensity of Mm -hmm. our human experience. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we're used to songs and pieces really delving into this idea of love. Mm -hmm. Benedetta Orsi, the mezzo-soprano who will be joining us for two of our concerts, brought is going to bring to the stage these Mahler songs of a wayfarer that are all really about a broken heart and and just that sense of how it feels it can feel like a death in mm-hmm. some some way. So a lot of the music just spanning all different eras and genres and instrumentation is all drawn together by this core emotion. So it could be love of a new nature and just Mm -hmm. kind of a joyful thing or love of an anguish kind of thing. Right. And the idea of diversion, we're programming the Benjamin Britten Divertimenti, three Mm -hmm. divertimenti for string quartet. And this is sort of a a love of a different kind. It's a love of what you're doing, this this effervescent love of making the sound in your instruments and diverting from this intensity of emotion, in a sense. Interesting. So, Yeah, if you're a performer, mm-hmm. you really have, you're really into the music you're listening, especially in chamber music, you've got to listen to all the other players, mm-hmm. and eye contact's very important, and expressing that emotion. And I can see that hearts coming out of the F-stops of the violins mm-hmm. and, and out of the piano and things like that. It's, mm-hmm. it's a really intense emotion when you're playing a piece, especially that I think touches in, in a variety of ways. So... The first concert is going to be, I have here, June the 12th. Yes, that's a Monday evening. And these are murder ballads. As many years as I've been listening to music and talking about music and being involved in music, I was like, murder ballads. I had never put that name on those particular kinds of songs. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is a genre. It is, yes. I have a quote here that is a from the first movement, it says, Oh, listen to my story, I'll tell you no lies, how John Lewis did murder poor little Omi Wise. And the mur- murder ballad has a tradition and its roots in Europe in which sort of grisly details of bloody homicides are recounted through song. Ooh. And if you think of Grimm's fairy tales, oh, yeah. too, they're always, they're cautionary, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and so it then became an American tradition. And what Bryce Dessner does in this piece is he borrows from some traditional material. So actually the the melodies of one of the movements is called Brushy Fork, and it's a Civil War era murder ballad fiddle tune. But then some of the movements are his own original compositions, like in Dark Holler, It's his own melody, and he uses some extended technique by having, I I place a 
metal rod inside the piano to make it sound very twangy, almost like a banjo, hmm. and really, really evocative. And it's I'm so excited to be able to do this entire piece, and it's a real tour de force for the ensemble. Yeah, I've got a little clip of that. Let's mm-hmm. listen to that. This is Omiwise. What's going to be the instrumentation of that song? So the this piece has, it's for six players, and we're all in pairs, actually. So we have a pair of woodwinds, flute and clarinet, a pair of string instruments, violin and cello, and then a percussive pair, so actually percussion and piano. Okay, and this composer, where is he from? Bryce Dessner is actually, has, is a, I hate using this word, but a popular musician. He's a guitar player in The Nationals, this band, but he is also a wonderful classical composer. And That's interesting. Yeah. That's a different feel. Yes, and he's his music has been featured in film, and I believe he's has some things that are on the score to The Revenant, okay. that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay. So then we go to Concert 2, which is going <laughs> to take place a couple days later, on yes. June 14th. Yes. And that concert, you're going to have some Grieg and Dvorak. Yes. And this is our morning concert, which is quite popular because it's just, yeah, <laughs> and, and <laughs> sort be- of lush. And before we go on any, mm-hmm. any further... Where are these going to take place? Yes, thank you for asking. The first three concerts of our series on June 12th at 7 p.m., June 14th at 10.30 a.m., and Thursday, June 15th at 7 p.m. are all going to take place at the First Congregational Church of Webster Groves, which is 10 West Lockwood Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, our last concert, which is on Saturday, June 17th at 8 p.m., has been moved to the CMS Concert Hall, so the concert hall that's part of the Community Music School of Webster University. Okay. And that's also in Webster Groves, and yeah. there's and that's a, an evening concert also. It's an evening concert, and there's ample garage parking that's accessible off of Garden It's very Ave. close by the auditorium there. Yes. Yeah. And I know we're going to get into the third concert and the fourth concert, exactly what they are. Mm-hmm. But how do folks, do they need tickets or can they just walk in or what's the best way to do that? Tickets are available for pre-purchase through our website, which is www.mochambermusic.org. But we also do a pretty robust door sale. So if people are making last minute plans... Okay. okay, sounds good. Certainly this is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston of St. Louis in Tune. We're talking to Nina Ferrigno. She is the executive director of the Missouri Chamber Music Festival, which is coming up June the 12th, the 14th, the 15th, and the 17th. And we've talked about the first two concerts a little bit. The third concert, Korngold, what is that all about? That's referring to the composer Eric Korngold, whose music we are featuring on that concert. Korngold was child prodigy growing up in Germany, and he actually, it was just an incredible 
talent at a young age. He wrote this piano quintet, which is a really major work when he was, he had achieved some early success and notoriety. He was around 24. Korngold is known for writing beautiful movie scores in Hollywood. They've He's got an incredible violin concerto and just gorgeous songs. And so we're doing this, starting off with Benedetta Orsi singing Glückwunsch, which is like, congratulations, good luck. And it's someone, you know, saying, I, it's again about love mm-hmm. and saying, <clears throat> I just wish you, I wish you well in your future, which won't be with me. And Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Well, it's a little, <laughs> it's a little more. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a little nicer. Yeah, it's that. not like, see ya. But, and, yeah, that's, it's going to be a beautiful concert. Also featured on there is Mahler's Songs of a Wayfarer, which mm. is four movements mm-hmm. about... Mahler's broken heart. He actually wrote the text himself, and it was just a kind of reworking through a, an end of a relationship, an unhappy, mm-hmm. unhappy love for him. Yeah. So. Concert four, intrigue. Mm-hmm. Well, you left the the big question mark for the last <laughs> concert. So this is yeah, this is a pretty fascinating concert. I was actually before I came over here listening to this particular concert Mm -hmm. and how all these pieces go together. It's centered around this ruse that is kind of a famous literary ruse. The French author Pierre Lois had written these poems and but he said that he found them and he had created a whole backstory of these thick era Greek poems and really elaborate and they're very important in literature and even after this the kind of deceit of their origin was exposed it didn't actually diminish their importance Mm -hmm. in the literature Um, but Debussy was friends with the author and had set three of the poems for voice and piano in 1897 and then three years later he set 12 of the poems for as music de scène pour la chanson de billetie, sort of incidental music for the recita- recitation of these poems. And we're going to be doing both versions. Oh, um, that'll be interesting. It is. It's, and he even went on again to take six of the poems, and they were the basis of a forehand piano work that he created. So there was just something very intriguing for Debussy about this music, these words, and it's very exciting. The instrumentation for the incidental music is very interesting. It's two flutes, two harps, and a celeste. Wow, that is um, interesting. And it'll be narrated. It makes you wonder if those were the only instruments available at the time. Yeah, I'm Mm. wondering too if he was trying to capture an ethereal he, kind yes, of... Yes, what he thought of was maybe this mm-hmm. Greek, right. you know... What um, it should sound like. Right, right. And definitely a feminine sort of instrumentation, something that's very angelic and up yeah, in the yeah. tessitura, because these poems are all kind of erotic, featuring erotic lesbian poetry. Though. Now, 
Talk about the artists who are going to be performing these things. You're drawing internationally. We had mentioned that, but yes, let's get into that a little bit because this is not your just average run-of-the-mill. I don't say this in a bad way, yeah. folks. Don't misunderstand me. But it's not like, okay, we have the local musicians mm-hmm. here playing, which are all very, very good, mm-hmm. and I'm not diminishing that, but right. you're really drawing internationally here. Well, we, at its heart, the festival is collaborative. So mm-hmm. the music we're playing demands a high intensity of collaboration on the stage. And what we always wanted to do was be able to infuse that energy of really working with people that we don't normally Normally get to work with. So we do have a really healthy mix of in-town musicians and who are all brilliant, really brilliant. And when I'm programming, I'm often thinking of of specific people to be working on okay. these pieces. Like, for instance, also on our last concert, we're doing a string trio written by Andrew Norman called Sabina, and it's just an exceptionally beautiful work. And I was absolutely thinking of our three performers for that piece, and they are Andrea Jarrett on violin, Yin Zhang on cello, and Alejandro Valdepeñas on viola. Also on that concert, we're bringing, we we are having some international representation. However, these are artists who happen to be right. in residence in St. Louis. So Benedetta Orsi, who's a wonderful Italian mezzo-soprano, and actually she's right now just finishing up some concertizing in France and Italy. Wow. And we'll be coming back this week, as well as the French composer, Ron Chisse, who will be doing our narration of the poetry for oh, our wow. last concert. So we'll have actually a wonderful native French speaker to be reciting. That's great that you're drawing on the local talent who are international, mm-hmm. who are here in, as residents. That's yes. that's a smart thing to do. And then festival favorites who will be returning are Catherine French and Jennifer Lucht. Kathy's a vi- wonderful violinist who is in the Boston Symphony, and Jennifer is cellist who's also in Boston area. And these are two musicians who join with me and form the Calix Piano Trio. And also Hugh Hinton, who is a pianist, and uh, he will be joining us and playing on the Corn Gold concert. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a piece that I've, I have a little clip, and this is, I'll give you a heads up on this. This is Voodoo Dolls. I saw this and I was like, hmm, <laughs> this sounds very interesting. So folks, listen to this. It starts out very rhythmic. It's You, you think it's percussion, but it's actually, well, it may be percussion, but it's also string instruments. Yep. So take a listen to this one. reading that this was 
commissioned and choreographed by a dance company. Yes, that's my understanding, yeah. <laughs> I can hear that. Yeah. I can just see that. How do the dolls get involved? Do you know about uh, I'm not sure that it's, at least I wasn't taking it as so literally. Um, mm -hmm. I think the voodoo dolls refers to, I don't know, this, for me, the this piece by Jesse Montgomery mm -hmm. and also Tumbao by Tanya Leone, which are on our first concert, are setting the tone in terms of right the rhythm mm -hmm. and the energy mm -hmm. of, and intensity. Yeah, and mm -hmm. intensity of just beginning to feel things. Mm -hmm. Right, I think it's really impossible to listen to either of those two pieces without moving. Right, you know, right. moving. And so in that way, I think. The way a voodoo doll, you're stabbing it and someone else is feeling it. It's kind of... Someone else is moving. <laughs> right, exactly. So I think it's in a way that sort of reference, that they're creating this energy that makes us all feel that we have to move. And she, I understand, is going to be composer in residence at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, folks, if you want to hear some, what I would call, I don't want to call it standard literature, mm -hmm. but if you want to hear some, a good cross-section of literature, what I would call standard literature and new compositions. And that composition that we just heard, Voodoo Dolls, that was 2008. So that's mm -hmm. actually not a new composition. Right. Um, but I guess in, in the span of the total music history mm -hmm. world, it is a very recent composition. Right. But the instrumentation on all these is great. Again, this is Monday, June 12th at 7 to 8.45, Wednesday, June 14th, 10.30 to noon. Thursday, June 15th, 7 to 9, and those concerts are going to be at? The First Congregational Church of Webster Groves, which is 10 West Lockwood Avenue. It's on the corner of Elm and Lockwood there. And then that fourth concert is June 17th from 7 to 9 o'clock, and oh, that's going to be? Sorry to interrupt. We've nope. actually had to change the start time of that concert to okay. 8 p.m. So. 8 p.m. Mm -hmm. So it's 8 to 10, and that mm -hmm. will be at the Community Music School Auditorium? Yes. So it's the concert hall. Um, at the Community Music School of Webster University. Okay, and folks, if you want to get tickets for that, uh, you can show up at the door, but you can also get them in advance at www.mochambermusic.org. So M-O-chambermusic.org. Nina Frigno, thanks for coming in and talking to us about your upcoming uh, season. Thank you so much, Arnold, for the opportunity. I hope people come out. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston of St. Louis in Tune. We'll be right back. This is Arnold Stricker of St. Louis in Tune on behalf of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation. In 1857, the Dred Scott decision was a major legal event and catalyst that contributed to the Civil War. The decision declared that Dred Scott could not be free because he was not a citizen. The 14th Amendment, also called the Dred Scott Amendment, granted citizenship to all born or naturalized here in our country and was intended to overturn the U.S. Supreme Court decision on July 9, 1868. The Dred Scott Heritage Foundation is requesting a commemorative stamp to be issued from the U.S. Postal Service to recognize and remember the heritage of this amendment by issuing a stamp with the likeness of the man Dred Scott but we need your support and the support of thousands of people who would like to see this happen. To achieve this goal, we ask you to download, sign, and share the one-page petition with others. To find the petition, please go to dreadscottlives.org and click on the Dred Scott Petition Drive on the right side of the page. 
On behalf of the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation, this has been Arnold Stricker of St. Louis In Tune. At St. Louis In Tune, we strive to bring you informative, useful, and reflective stories, as well as interviews about current and historic issues and events that involve people, places, and things. We cover a wide range of topics, such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports, and that's just to name a few. While St. Louis In Tune originates from the Gateway City and covers local topics, we also connect to what's going on nationally as well. If you missed any of our previously aired programs of St. Louis In Tune, simply visit stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. There you'll find the show notes and everything that was mentioned in that episode and all the other great episodes as well. And if you've got an area that you'd like us to examine deeper, well, just let us know by dropping us a note at stlintune at gmail.com. That's stlintune at gmail.com. St. Louis In Tune. It's heard Monday through Friday on the usradionetwork.com and many great radio stations around the U.S. and, of course, right here in St. Louis. Our website, again, is stlintune.com. Visit us today. That's stlintune.com. Welcome back to St. Louis in Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. Mark is on assignment. He will be back shortly. Hey, folks, if you missed that interview with Nina Ferrigno from the Missouri Chamber Music Festival, you need to check that out. Don't forget that season 13 begins June the 12th and runs through June the 17th. That is the 13th season. For more information, you can go to mochambermusic.org, mochambermusic.org. Great information there. Local talent, international talent going to be performing, and it's right here in your own backyard, right in Webster Groves, not too far from everywhere. So there are have been a couple things that have caught my attention, and one is we live in a very contentious kind of culture right now. People are at each other's throats, and I don't know whether they were that way prior to COVID and the pandemic or whether that pandemic exacerbated certain things in people, but we've got people that are just at odds with each other over small kinds of things, and people are on edge. I would even say I'm a little on edge about certain things. And I think back to a time when, uh, I'm going to talk about debating, when debating was something that was normal. It was something that was engaged in a calm manner, and now it seems like we don't debate anymore. We want to uh, inflict opinions, our own personal opinions, on other people and put other people down and really don't want to listen to what they have to say, especially if they have a differing opinion, because we will categorize them and classify them and put them in a little silo and assume everything about the silo on them. And that's not necessarily the case. Point in being, I remember back to when I was in college and a high school student that I was 
I knew their family, and she was on the debate team at the local high school. And she said, hey, would you mind being a judge for the debate contest? And I had never done this. I had not participated in debate in high school and thought, this will be interesting. I have never done this and got some of the, the rules when I showed up, talked to the person who was running the debate and sat down. And apparently at that time, the students had some topics that they were to prepare, and they were to prepare for both sides. And I think this is typical in how debates ran at that time and still how some run today. So they had, they could, I'm just going to choose a topic right now. This is one of the topics that they had, but I'm going to choose fracking, okay? And so people would have to get information on why fracking is good, and they would have to do research on why fracking was not good. And they would not know which side that they were going to be supporting or talking about. They would not know if they were going to be pro-fracking or anti-fracking until they got there. And then they would get up and do their debate. They would talk. They would listen to the other person's particular opinions and their facts. And then they would have their opinions and facts back. And they would go back and forth for a specified period of time. And then somebody myself and other people who were judges would say this person had the most factual and convincing information and this is why maybe it was how they presented the information it was clear and concise maybe it was very they were very articulate in what they did it could be a variety of factors and that's how i always thought debates were and you get to the presidential debates and that's a whole nother thing that's thrown out the window where we have people calling people names we have people interrupting other people we have people going beyond their time we have people who have audience participants who have filled an auditorium who are generating what i would call kind of distractions for the other candidates and that's very unfortunate because i think the american people especially in presidential debates have they need and they want to hear the candidates speak on specific issues and not be called names and not be laughed at because of name calling or maybe because they have differing opinions it's let's listen to all these opinions because there's always going to be people that will fact check the media has a fact checking kind of mechanism especially certain media outlets that's all they do. They will fact check you to death to make sure that what you are saying is true because candidates will throw out opinions and they'll throw out what they think are facts, but the facts may be skewed a certain way. They may have left out a certain little bit of information that was important. And so that's left up, and then that will come out the next day and several days afterwards, and there will be other debates, and that's how we've done this. So there was an article that drew my attention, and this is an article by James Fishback, And it is entitled, At High School Debates, Debate is No Longer Allowed. He says, At national tournaments, judges are making their stances clear. Students who argue capitalism can reduce poverty or Israel has a right to defend itself will lose no questions asked. That kind of headline drew my attention. And this is from the Free Press. And I want to read part of this because... You have to understand where we are in society today, that are we so intent on only wanting to hear our ideas that we only will hear people that have our ideas? We don't want to hear the opposing side. And I say that Stanford University was a good example of that. Many universities 
their free speech has not really become free speech because if we're, let's say we're University A, and University A invites someone who has some, let's say, progressive opinions, and University A is a conservative school, and some of the conservative students say, no, I don't want to hear that progressive opinion, and they boycott or they do a sit-in and say, we're going to force the administration not to have this person come in, sometimes they're successful. The other way around, too, you have a progressive university, University Z, and some conservative person has been invited to speak on some issues, and the progressive students say, nope, nope, we don't want to do that. We don't want to hear this. This is wrong. Why have you done this? And the university is forced to say, sorry, we're disinviting you from that. This happens even at graduation speeches, and somebody is supposed to come in and speak, and then when the students find out, it's like, what are you thinking? Maybe the administration is thinking we need to hear varied viewpoints. So I'm going to read part of this. This is, again, by James Fishback. And he is, he knows what he's talking about as it relates to debate, because he has placed in national debates. Matter of fact, he placed ninth at the National Speech and Debate Association National, sixth at the Harvard National, and was runner-up at the Emory National Debate Contest. So he also coached a debate team in Miami, Florida, and he said competition that rewards evidence and reasoning has moved to one that punishes students for what they say and how they say it. And so he gives a little background on tournaments and the National Speech and Debate Association, and there is something called a tab room, which is a public database of where judges post their paradigms of what they look for during a debate. Now, I thought that was interesting because I always thought, hey, it's like being an umpire. Of course, umpires have been in trouble here recently by calling strikes when they're balls and balls when they're strikes, especially when there's a computer-generated box that's sitting over the plate while we're watching a baseball game. Or referees. And if you are in tune with anything that's going on, referees at Little League games or soccer games for kids. It's This isn't the MSL, okay? And we're all human beings, and sometimes we make mistakes. But listen to this. In this tab room where judges post their paradigms of what they're looking for in a debate, if a judge prefers competitors not speak a mile a minute, they'll say that. Debaters normally will say, I'll moderate my pace because this judge doesn't like me speaking very quickly. If a judge emphasizes that the reasons why an argument matters, they will adjust accordingly. But there was a high school sophomore who clicked on this tab room, and she saw that her judge was a certain person. And the paradigm read, before anything else, including being a debate judge, I am a Marxist-Leninist-Maoist. I cannot check the revolutionary proletarian science at the door when I'm judging. I will no longer evaluate and thus never vote for rightist, capitalist, imperialist positions slash arguments. Examples of arguments of this nature are as follows. Fascism, good. Capitalism, good. Imperialistic war, good. Neoliberalism, good. Defenses of U.S. or otherwise bourgeois nationalism, Zionism or normalizing Israel, colonization, good. U.S. white fascist policing, good, etc. She's not going to, don't want to hear any of those things. So how does this student 
What are they going to do when they walk in knowing that this person is going to be the judge? When there may be another judge whose paradigm says this, focus on clarity over speed, and reminds them every argument should explain exactly how you win the debate. Or it could be another paradigm from another debate judge that says, if you're discussing immigrants in a round and describe the person as quote-unquote illegal, I will immediately stop the round, give you the loss with low speaks, or that's low points. I will give you a stern lecture and then talk to your coach. I will not have you making the debate space unsafe. So it's interesting. Another judge has a list of, quote, things that will cause you to automatically lose, unquote. Where have we gotten with communicating ideas and facts? So he goes on, and in this particular article, he talks about another tab room where a judge says, quote, I have been a trial lawyer for 25 years. I like clash, quality evidence from qualified sources, comparative analysis, and crystallization in last rebuttals. Don't take anything for granted. You have to explain your arguments, why your evidence is compelling, and how the arguments weigh in the round. It's your job to persuade me and communicate your positions in a way that is effective. That is how you will win my ballot. I don't like whining, personal attacks, dominance, aggression, and disrespects. I do appreciate professionalism, kindness, and integrity. Here's another paradigm from another debate judge. My favorite debates are rigorous but friendly. I actually appreciate when one debater accepts one of their opponent's arguments as valid, but still persuades me that they should win the round. I will make my decision based on who is the most persuasive, but persuading me will be done by showing with evidence that one side upholds their value and criteria better than the other side. In order to do this, a debater must speak slowly and clearly enough for me to hear and understand the arguments. The National Speech and Debate Association has, my words, muddied the waters a little bit and made debate a political kind of venue rather than a venue of free speech and a teaching opportunity, which it is. So to get into that, I want to mention that they have also identified certain things that should be eliminated— They've identified unsafe conversations that they don't want to hear. And this is actually, I'm quoting again from the article, this is a long way from the 2004 Democratic National Convention when an obscure state senator from Illinois named Barack Obama said, quote, if there's a child on the south side of Chicago who can't read, that matters to me, even if it's not my child. If there's an Arab-American family being rounded up without the benefit of an attorney or due process, that threatens my civil liberties. It's the fundamental belief, I am my brother's keeper, I am my sister's keeper, that makes this country work. It's what allows us to pursue our individual dreams yet still come together as a single family. When policies and issues that impact different communities are told, we're told we need to evaluate students with consideration to their identity and cultural background versus for what they're saying, it takes things a little bit on their ear. So there have been also other kind of paradigms 
where a particular judge used some racial epithets. And I will not read those, but if you're thinking that's going to be your judge and your topic deals with things that relate to integration or culture in our world, that judge is coming from that particular perspective, and they're going to judge you not on the basis of how you've presented your arguments or the articulate, how articulate you've been, but based upon their viewpoint, looking through the lens of their philosophy and culture. So it's not just that certain arguments are no longer welcome, it's that students who make those arguments are no longer welcome, because there was a student who was at a debate, matter of fact, the National Speech and Debate National Tournament in Fort Lauderdale in 2018, who was publicly ridiculed by peers for making some conservative arguments. And apparently they ridiculed this student on social media and ridiculed that student verbally at the tournament. And what does this want want to make you want to do as a student? Just say, I'm done with this. I'm fed up with this. I'm not going to do this anymore. And being humiliated. Now, I want to get into something that discusses exactly what this is. We're talking about ideas. We're talking about evidence. We're talking about experience, that when we have conversations with people that we know, or even that we don't know, we're basing a lot of what we are speaking to them about based upon our own personal experience, the evidence that we've gathered, or ideas that we have. Sometimes people will just, I heard something on on the television or the radio, and now I'm going to believe that because it's coming from person ABC, or it's coming from person LMNOP, or it's coming from person XYZ. And there is no, hello, do your own research, check it out to see if it's true. It's great to listen to one particular news program, but it's also great to listen to the news program of the opposing opinion and see how they are presenting the news, if they're presenting that news at all. But I wanted to talk about two things in the classroom because I'm a former educator, I'm still an educator. Sometimes in education, one of the things about discussing opposing viewpoints has been what's called, in, by some people, a dominant model of deliberation in the classroom. Okay, so what they do is there's discussion, all right? And the discussion and the dialogue is a critical kind of thinking. And critical thinking, what I mean is, here's the idea, does this work, does this not work? Okay, I'm not talking about critical theory, I'm talking about critical theory in the way of thinking. Critical thinking. Can you think for yourself? Can you dissect what somebody said and say, is this rational? Is this reasonable? Is there evidence to support this? If there is, how does that relate to what I believe? Do Does it meld with what I have? Is it in opposition? Can I support what I believe with facts, etc.? And then there is this other viewpoint which says we need to be collaborative. And we need to, instead of having students debate contentious issues and take a problem-solving approach, we, we want to encourage them to take a problem-solving approach. Now, those are really two different, what I'm going to call, processes. And I think both are adequate and should be taught, that you teach a debate, you teach a ideas and evidence and experience back and forth, and you also teach a collaborative kind of deliberation, where people are working on a common problem. When you're debating something, you're not working on a common problem. 
I don't get what the uh, deliberative kind of people, the collaborative deliberation in the classroom, those folks who support that and want that to be our quote-unquote debate process, I don't understand exactly what they're, what they're talking about there. Both are venues to help kids learn, and we should want our kids to think. I'm worried that we're trying to allow social media and the internet to give us our information rather than fact-checking it ourselves. The information is that what it is. It's information. It's not something that we should grasp and base our lives upon. It is just there. And not all of that information is necessarily accurate. Just look at some of the AI pictures and videos that have come out recently that are total fakes. So how do you know that the information that you're getting is accurate unless you do your own fact-checking yourself. So I'm off my little diatribe about debates. I'll post that article when I post this on the podcast page, which is stlintune.com, stlintune.com. And by the way, so we don't have a little heavy at the end here, want to finish up with some humor. I really just want to apologize to all the people I called old at 40 when I was 18. So the IRS suspected a fishing boat owner wasn't paying proper wages to his deckhand and sent an agent to investigate him. The IRS auditor said, I need a list of your employees and how much you pay them. The boat owner said, there's Clarence, my deckhand. He's been with me for three years. I pay him $1,000 a week plus free room and board. Then there's, he's really a challenged guy. He works about 18 hours every day does about 90% of the work around here. He makes about $10 per week, pays his own room and board, and I buy him a bottle of Bacardi rum and a dozen beers every Saturday night so he can cope with life. And sometimes he gets intimate with my wife. The IRS auditor said, that's the guy I'm here to talk to, that challenged guy. The boat owner says, that would be me. What would you like to know? I'm having a little nap on the sofa before taking myself up to bed for my main sleep. I call it the snore d'oeuvre. So here are things to ponder, folks. If the number two pencil is the most popular, why is it still number two? Why do we drive on parkways and park on driveways? Why do fat chance and slim chance mean the same thing. Hmm, why do people say heads up when you should duck? Why are you in a movie but on TV? Why are there no B batteries? When does it stop being partly cloudy and start being partly sunny? And why do we press harder on a remote control when we know the batteries are getting weaker. Hmm. Hmm. So sometimes there are televangelists who do healing services on television. And it's really, really important to know that I believe medical healing happens. They can do that through their physician, but there's also a great physician. But Robert asked the televangelist to pray for his hearing. 
After three minutes of violent shaking and trying to push him over backwards, the preacher asked, How's your hearing? Robert replied, I don't know. It doesn't take place until Tuesday at the courthouse. And did you realize, folks, that the last day of 2023, the last day of 2023 will be 123123? So if you have some co-workers, do you have a nickname for them? Now, this this is sometimes people get a little sassy with this. Here are some nicknames for co-workers that maybe you can identify with some of these. We've got the Kit Kat, always taking a break. (laughs) Butter knife, not the sharpest tool in the box. Motion light, only works when someone walks past. E.T. always wants to go home. Seaweed floats around all day and kind of stinks. Lantern, not very bright and has to be carried. (laughs) Oh, deck chair always folds under pressure. Daisy, some days in, some days he's in. Coleslaw, they're 90% cabbage. And lastly, we'll close with this. The top five ways to hack off an Italian. Number one, put ice cubes in your wine. Serve them overcooked pasta. Ask them if their family is in the mafia. Use their bright white decorative bathroom towels. And tell them to lower their voice or calm down. Oh, goodness. Folks, that's all for this hour. Don't forget, when the Martians invade, there's only one race, the human race, and every one of us have different characteristics and is uniquely valuable. St. Louis Tune is a production of Motif Media Group and the U.S. Radio Network. For co-host Mark Langston, I'm Arnold Stricker. Remember to walk worthy and let your light shine.